being culturally humble, especially in a diverse church, has its definite challenges. And there can be a temptation to say, you know, I'll do that and I'll do that, but I won't go there. And we bring in these boundaries without even often realizing it where we just won't go. It's some of those things that we're going to continue our discussion today in. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast. This is episode 17. I am Michael Burns, and we're joined again today by Jason Alexander. We're continuing to go through the book, All Things to All People, The Power of Cultural Humility. And we are today in chapter 11, which is entitled, But I Won't Do That. And we're going to um, pick up where we left off last time. And if we have time on this episode today, there's a... um, I think really important uh, question from a, a podcast listener that we want to deal with, and we'll see if we have time to get to that today. Jason, how are you doing today? No, I won't do that. Thank you. Song stuck in my head <laughs> since like what two, three weeks ago now. So I'm uh, I'm ready to roll. Well, you know. I think meatloaf should be stuck in everyone's head. So that's that's fair. Although I have to be honest, I'm not sure that I could name another song that meatloaf sings. I could not. Yeah. I, I can picture the album cover with a guy on a Harley like driving out of the flames of hell. Um, but that's all I know. It's funny because I think when I heard that song, I would do anything for love. And everybody was like, oh, meatloaf's back. And I was like, oh, I'd never heard of meatloaf before, but okay, you know. Um, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't doing a lot of uh, that kind of music. Um, at that time, I was pretty... Uh, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I was pretty pretty hip-hop oriented, you know, oh, EPMD. and out, man. Um, oh, yeah, there you go. Well, that's... A, that's that, a, that was that's my acceptable. favorite group, EPMD, man. Yeah, yeah. Mid-80s, late-80s. Uh, Eric and Parrish, that's right. Yeah. Had a little uh, uh, Love Dana Dane, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I have a crazy confession. Have I ever told you about my confession with Dana Dane? No, but no. Okay, go ahead. So I probably shouldn't tell this story on a podcast where other people can hear it. It might invalidate my high school diploma, but actually in 10th grade, our teacher assigned, we were supposed to write a, um, a a, like creative story or poem. And I was like, I don't have a creative writing bone in my body. Like I can't do that. So do you remember, uh, Cinderfella by Dana Dane? Yes. Cinderfella, Dana Dane. Yeah. One of the greatest breaks ever. Yeah. Oh, it's great. So I basically, adapted well i just stole the lyrics from that song and changed them a little bit adapted (laughs) and and i wrote them down and i turned it in for my 10th grade english assignment and the teacher gave me like an a and was like this is really creative very good yeah and i was able to pass that unit um thanks to dana dane 
So, um, which is, I'd like, to, I'd like to point out that I was not, uh, living as a Christian at that moment in my yeah. life. So yeah. not necessarily endorsing that behavior, but I've done that. A lot of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies became book reports when I was a kid. So. What? <laughs> I did the same thing. Just change the title. Tell the plot of Bloodsport or something like that. <laughs> which, is a, which is a fantastic movie. Oh, Oscar winner. Yeah. Kumite. That's the one with the Kumite, right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Okay. Um, we've probably lost any listeners okay. at this yeah, point. We're. We're down to like two people listening to this episode. So, That's true. Um, but let me jump in. I, I do want to pick up on a on a serious uh, story that I write about. And what I want to do today is I'm just going to read by section and then ask for your reaction, and then we'll move on. Um, New Jersey high school's wrestling official Alan Maloney became a temporary internet celebrity when a story about a match he officiated went viral. Moments before the match, Maloney gave high school wrestler Andrew Johnson an ultimatum. Maloney had determined that Johnson's dreadlocks were inappropriate for a wrestling match, and despite the fact that Johnson had his dreads tied up properly in the manner required for long hair, Maloney, who was accused in 2016 of hurling racial epithets toward a fellow referee, decreed that either they must be cut off on the spot or the match would be forfeited. Johnson relented and had a coach cut off his locks, but someone in the crowd recorded the event and it went viral the moment it hit the internet. Maloney has since been suspended and will no longer be used as a referee in that school district. Dreadlocks are often a deeply cultural expression, but this case seems to go beyond a situation where someone was just unfamiliar with that hairstyle and unsure what to do. We can't know what's in someone's heart, but it does seem that there was a good amount of prejudice involved, and that prejudice, unchecked, turned into outright discrimination. We don't like to talk about prejudice and discrimination these days. Most of us would like to wish them out of existence. But when we don't talk about things that are real... They merely become cultural phantoms. We don't speak of them. We don't see them because we don't want to, but they are there nonetheless. Uh, I, I will say, Jason, at the time I wrote this, they definitely weren't topics of conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. Now in the past few weeks, uh, prejudice and discrimination have really been pushed to the yeah. forefront and we right. are talking about them. Doesn't mean people want to, especially when it comes to their own but it is much more a topic of conversation. Yeah, yeah. We would especially like to presume that the demons of prejudice, bias, discrimination, and the like do not exist in the body of Christ. Oh, that these scourges did not survive the waters of baptism, but they can, and at times they do. And we must be able to admit that. We've become so opposed to prejudice and racism that it's often become counterproductive. They're considered so bad in our culture that as Christians, we dare not speak of them and certainly would not feel permitted or comfortable to admit that we have biases or feelings of prejudice that surface at times. We may not always be aware of these things, but when we are, we have learned that it's best to keep quiet. They become the unspeakable sins, which locks them in just under the surface. There are times that some of us oppose cultural inclusion in general or certain forms of it because we are outright prejudiced against some 
groups or their cultural expressions. To become culturally competent communities, we must be able to confess prejudice and bias and to do so without reprisal or being labeled and ostracized. We can only work through sins when we can admit them and openly admit them openly and find acceptance and love to help us conquer them. Jason, what's your response? Uh, do you have a response to that section? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I, I remember this very well. It's not that long ago, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it's the, this is the, the uh, perfect example of um, you know, cultural ignorance, um, arrogance. It's just, uh, you know, dreadlocks aren't, um, they don't grow overnight. And it's, um, you know, there's, there's the stories in, um, I just read it this week in, in this, in Samuel, uh, where, uh, some of David's men are shamed uh, by having their, uh, their beards and, uh, well, I think it's primarily their beards shaved, um, and their, their pants are cut up too, but, but it's, it's an identity, identity marker. And so it's, it's tantamount to, um, you know, de dehumanizing somebody. It's it's taking away uh, what, how one identifies himself. So I think this is just, that's. I mean, this is this is the world that we live in. You know, I guess. But it's. Um, yeah. 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 And uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, this idea of uh, obviously, you know, bias and prejudice don't uh, leave us automatically at the waters of baptism any more than pride or selfishness or greed do. It's, it, it comes with us, and it's things we have to identify yeah. and work yeah. on. Uh, but on the other end of it, we don't want to create a culture in the church where uh, there is um, no room to even confess those things. People become afraid because mm, it, mm. it becomes the unpardonable, unspeakable sin, which in many yeah. respects it has in our society. Mm -hmm. um, what do we, you know, what do we do with that in the church? How do we make sure that we can be honest and confront, you know, prejudice and bias but also not to get to the point where people feel like they've got to hide it up or won't admit it or become super ultra defensive about it. Well, that, uh, yeah, because you're, you're, you're tying it to, to, um, you know, baptism. I, I do have a lot of, a lot of thoughts here, but I, I guess, you know, this probably isn't the time for a full, um, Oh, why not? Sermon, but but we're always but think, ready you know, for a Jason Alexander sermon. <laughs> um, but I think I think the way we we think, talk, and teach about things like baptism, uh, you know, does you know it doesn't help this situation. And um, yeah, I, I think you know we, we're big on. Um, you know, baptism as you know this this decision, this this moment we've made, and when we ha when we actually have our baptisms, more times than not, it becomes a celebration of the baptizee, 
than it does uh, of God's work in a person's life. It becomes more of a communal, like, welcome so-and-so, and, you know, they've grown so much. And I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate someone's uh, trajectory towards the water of baptism, but I think even the way that we, we think about baptism is it's this securing um, securing our post-mortem, <laughs> our, our, our afterlife. And so we don't, we don't think of it as um, like the New Testament does uh, generally, uh, which is activating us to live a new life, not magically um, securing our future, but giving us the power um, through, through the Holy Spirit to live a new life. And that power is seen and becomes visible in our growing, not, ha not having it all whisked away. So, and you, you see that, uh, now you're seeing that, um, you know, immaturities of people that have long been, you know, Christians, you're seeing the work of God in their lives as this stuff comes to the surface and um, it glorifies God, in my opinion. Um, mm. So to, to think of baptism as the journey being done, um, I think is part of the problem because then we can just quickly lean on when it comes to these discussions, let's not have them, let's just be Christians. We've been baptized. That stuff's in the past, um, which, yeah. which never seems to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, not that being a disciple doesn't work, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you know, ignoring, I, ignoring things with a simple, like, yeah, that's in the past. We're, we're, we're new creations now. Um, that fails to take into consideration the work of God in our lives, which gives him honor yeah. in our growth. So. Yeah. Well, and it, it seems to me, uh, I appreciate your answer, and it seems to me that um, every generation of Christians will have sins that they will struggle with uh, to make mm -hmm. the, the unforgivable sin and to make it sort of worse than all yeah. others. And I think, um, and rightly right. so, I, I, you know, I look at the church as a, as a movement, as a whole, uh, in our contemporary situation, we look back and go, man, the church of the eighties and nineties and two thousands singled out homosexuality as a sin, right. you know, above right. all others and, and really treated people with a lack of grace and love and, um, I, I think that's uh, accurate, and I think that's something we need to pay attention to. And I'm certainly not implying that we excuse uh, injustice or uh, you know prejudice or bias. I think we need to confront them, as Paul confronted Peter, you know, in the church and dealt with it. But at the same time, make sure that we don't follow the culture's lead and make this the the sin above all sins, where uh, we become so passionate about it that we're no longer treating people with grace and mercy as well, showing grace, uh, you know, sh showing solidarity for the oppressed, but grace to yeah. the oppressor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's a challenge. Um, it is. Yeah. Let's uh, let, let me move on here and go into the section uh, entitled ethnocentrism. And I want to hear your thoughts here. Through our first several years of marriage, my wife and I had conflicts that arose over cultural differences. I'm, I'm glad to report that we no longer have conflict of any kind in our marriage. Um, <clears throat> no, I didn't imagine you did. Yeah, no, never. It's, it's, been, it's been 17, 18 years, yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> or 17 or 18 minutes, one or the other. I'll let you be the judge. Um, yeah. what, one of the most pronounced areas of irritation for me was when we went out in public. I was raised to keep a low profile when in a public setting. If you're talking with someone, you did so as quietly as possible so as not to disturb yes. anyone else so they couldn't he- and so they couldn't hear your conversation. You certainly, totally. right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. You, you certainly didn't want to draw any unnecessary attention or impinge upon others in any way. Then I was suddenly thrust into a relationship with a person who was raised quite differently. Her culture does not individualize in the same way that mine does. So there's not an emphasis on my space versus yours. We are all in this together and being loud and demonstrative in public is the norm. For years, I was embarrassed by this when we would go out with other people of this culture. It bugged me way more than it should have. I viewed it as rude, arrogant, and lacking class. I could not conceive of any way, shape, or form in which that could be viewed as appropriate or proper behavior. My way was better. In fact, my way was the only right way. That kind of thinking is called ethnocentrism. It is the viewpoint that my cultural practices and values are superior to others. It's one thing to prefer my culture. It's another thing to believe that my culture is inherently better. That will leave me close to understanding and valuing other cultural expressions. And if I'm close to them, there will be no attempts at engaging in them or including them in the life of the community. It's natural to prefer our own primary culture, but ethnocentrism is a danger to community. We must seek to be aware of it and confront it in ourselves when we detect it. Ethnocentrism is a form of arrogance and can be a serious threat within the walls of a multi-ethnic church. Jason, have you seen or how have you seen ethnocentrism be a threat within a diverse church? Well, I mean, the... The, the obvious way, I suppose, is the um, a, a dominant a dominant culture. I mean, you, you there's a what you're describing with the, um, the the loud the loud speech in public. Um, me and my wife must have different cultures because she is like just just shy of like megaphone <laughs> level volume when we're in public and and i'm i'm the same way um but yeah i i there's you're you're the same way as her or as me no as you as you like it's you know i'm i'm just don't draw any attention to us um and it's actually it breaks my heart a little because i i'm like that with with her where it's just like you're 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 acting like a, a barbarian, you know, it's not, it's not c- civilized. And, um, you know, I would, I would imagine she probably feels judged by that. And I think, yes. you know, you, you see that I'll have to, I'll have to apologize after we're done here, but, but that, <laughs> that, um, that uh, you see that at work in the church specifically with the, 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 the larger or the dominant group. I mean, it's a, um, it's, it's not all, it quickly turns to arrogance. It's not only, um, we don't do things like that around here. It can easily become, that is not a good way to do it anywhere. Yeah. This is a better way. 
which is why churches that get planted in, in, in other countries from the Western world tend to look more like the Western world um, than they do an authentic expression of God's kingdom in whatever country they are, you know? So I don't know if that's kind of where yeah. you're headed with this discussion, but that's, I mean, there's, me. yeah, there's a lot of different angles and I, I think you're right. And, and even, um, uh, one big way that I see the, the fruit of ethnocentrism and I, and I think a lot of times we don't think about it. It's not at mm. the forefront of our mind, like we're going to exclude, right. but it, it, it becomes manifest in a, a default culture and being yeah, unaware right. that there's a default culture. And so um, I have had a just a ton of phone calls in the last couple of weeks I, from yeah. churches wanting to um, inquire about how they could best go about um, uh, instituting a cultural unity and diversity team in their own church and how, how they can pay attention to those issues. And, you know, we talk about a lot of different aspects of that, but one of them is celebration. And I said, you know, a, yeah. a really important part of a community is what you celebrate. And that sends Amen. Uh, important, yeah. you know, signals about what is important to you. And, uh, you know, I've talked with uh, a bunch of churches and said, you know, there's one level where you want to be more inclusive and you want to, you know, and I've talked about how our church here in Minnesota for, for several years now, we've, uh, you know, observed Juneteenth and things like that, mm -hmm. because that's part of our community. And, um, but then I've also said, you know, one of the things that can be kind of ethnocentric and actually seem like a good thing, but work in the opposite direction is like, let's say a church uh, is, decides we're going to have a Latin party, uh, you know, a Latino party, or, you know, we're going to have, you know, uh, we, we have a lot of, uh, or a few Caribbean folks in our church, so we're going to have a Caribbean night. And mm -hmm. the, the warning of that is, well, it's good to be inclusive. The very fact that you're announcing that it's yeah. a Latino night or mm -hmm. a Caribbean night, yeah. um, right. indicate that that's a yeah. divergence. It's unusual. Yeah, yeah it's, it's unusual right. from the default culture. Yeah. Because yeah. nobody Great would point. say, hey, we're going to have a white European night tonight. You know, like, right. <laughs> like let's do that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so without realizing it. And so, you know, I've said like things. Um, now, we weren't able to do it this year because of the coronavirus, but we had talked about having uh, um, in the church here a white party. A and what? A white party. Okay. Now. Like like LA Clippers type of thing? No, 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 no. So I'm going to, I'm going to explain that. Okay. <laughs> now it's, it's funny because when I bring that up to white folks and I've done that on calls, they're like, what, what's a white party? That doesn't seem like something we would want to have at church. <laughs> and I've said, no, no, no. And, but then I've talked to, you know, black brothers, African-American and mentioned that. And they're like, Oh, come on now, man. That's yeah, what I'm talking yeah. about. Well, a white party is just part of the black culture. You say there's a white party, everybody pulls out their white outfits and you come dressed in all white. And that's just that's just part of the deal. And so if we were going to, you know, 
I think it would be counterproductive for a church to say, let's have a marriage dance and it's we're going to have a black culture night. Everybody wear mm. white. Mm. Like now we're, we're you know, sort of yeah. cementing the default culture. But what we want to do is just say, hey, we're having a white party tonight with no comment, you know, or, hey, we're having a marriage dance and then you show up and it's maybe very Latino themed and infused yeah. Yeah. without the commentary on it, without, you know, and sometimes as a diverse community, you have to explain things. You might have to explain sure, sure. a little bit what a white party is. Um, but you know what I mean? And so without realizing it, it's really easy to send signals that there is a better culture. There is a default uh, yeah. culture. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, what you're getting at, I, th I think is, you know, our speech, especially publicly, our, you know, the, the, the way we talk about what we're doing becomes very important. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we can um, we can make what we say just an issue of semantics, but but you're right. I mean that is a trajectory setting kind of announcement. How you would how you would talk about this, yeah. You know? um, so yeah, that's and we're never we're never going to get it perfect, and that's sure. not the goal. Uh, and, and admittedly, it is it's a real balance of discernment and being careful wisdom you know uh, of saying let's be intentional about being inclusive but also yeah. avoid um you know or work towards not having a, a default culture yeah. and and that's difficult for people the dominant culture because um you know I've, I've said it often when all you've ever known is advantage or superiority mm -hmm equality feels like oppression yeah and you know if you give um if let's say your your whole life you, you're older than your brother and so for a long time every time your mom pulled out a piece of pizza or pulled out a pizza you get seven pieces and he gets one and you know then now he's getting older and she realizes wow maybe that wasn't fair i'm going to give you both four that's actually um, that's actually equity, uh, but to you it feels like oppression. Yeah. Like, hey, wait, yeah. I'm losing three pieces here. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's yeah, important. You're getting the shaft. Yeah, right. getting the shaft. Um, and so I think it's really important to recognize to um, be self-deferential to step outside of myself and let me look at the bigger picture and say, wow, my brothers and sisters have been laying down their cultural preferences for years and years. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had to do that. And now I'm just being asked to be part of an inclusive community yeah. Uh, yeah. where we're all on equal ground and get yeah. over those feelings of I'm getting the shaft. Yeah. 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 <laughs> This might be uh, outside of what time allows for, but what do you, some of, I've encountered this, you know, you, you see that um, it, it's, it's not a willingness, a willing like hesitancy that I've noticed in, in Christians, like, I don't want to surrender the way I do church. I mean, there's some of that, I suppose, where it's like, we've always done it this way. This is how I orient myself, but but there's also built into the the 
the way we do things, um, you know, we don't like this word in, in restoration uh, churches, but there's tradition at work. And so as you begin to change the culture of a church, there, there, there may be in some folks an anxiety that you're also compromising something bigger than just culture, something that is somehow, you know, mandated yes. by God. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so there, there's also often people rise to defend the way we do things because they're under the assumption, well, this is, it's not just a matter of dominant culture. It's a matter of the spirit. Right. Or this is a biblically informed way of doing things. Yes. Um, and so what, what, what begins with not a bad heart, I guess, I guess that's the right impulse. It, it's, it's limiting. You know? Right. I, I, I got, this was supposed to be a question. <laughs> um, does that factor in, I guess, is that a, well, it, it becomes a huge factor because, yeah. um, because culture is invisible. If we're not aware of it, if we don't take the steps to become aware of it, we will think that it's something else other than what it mm -hmm. is. We will right. think that it is, well, this is just the normal human way to do things. Or we will think this is the biblical way to do things. This is the right way. And and I'm not saying throw everything out and do whatever you want. Sure. But I'm saying there's lots of different ways to approach fellowship. You know, the scriptures say sing to one another. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say culturally right. what that's going to look like or what sermons should look like or sound like. And so I right. think we've got to be really careful to differentiate culture from tradition preference and you know what's actually the the biblical core of what yeah. needs to be done the, in a the, community the spirit of the of the text would would place uh equity and justice before a, a specific methodology or um frame for yes. organizing a community you know i this reminds me of you know david foster wallace has that um that Oh, it was a commencement speech. I can't remember which school it was at, but I think it's called like there, there's this is water or this is liquid or something like that. But he says, you know, culture um, for us is like water is for a fish. Uh, yep, exactly. Like if you t if you tell a fish, you know, how's the water? They'd be like water. Right. <laughs> like they don't think of it in those terms. It's just precisely, um, precisely. Yeah. We're we're blind to it. Um, and, and so it's, it's difficult for us then to accurately assess our own culture and to even accurately assess others' cultures because we're unfamiliar with theirs and we can, mm, mm, we can tend to good. flatten it out. And that actually leads us into the next section. I want to read yeah. this and um, get your thoughts here. It says, in 2009, author and speaker Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie delivered an address for a TED Talk on the danger of the single story. In it, she warns about reducing people from other places and cultures to a limited perspective in which we think that everyone from that place or group is basically the same. She describes growing up in Nigeria with domestic helpers. All she ever perceived of them was that they were poor. One day, she went to the house of one of the boys who worked in her home, and she was shown some of the beautiful artwork the boy's mother had made. 
she was unexpectedly surprised because all she had ever thought or imagined about this boy was his poverty. She never dreamed of him having beauty, artwork, and passion in his world. When Adichie grew older and went to university in the United States, she was greeted by an American roommate who was surprised that she spoke English so well, knew how to use a stove, and when asked to play some of her tribal music, instead produced her favorite Mariah Carey tape. Her roommate, Chamamanda discovered, had a well-meaning but patronizing pity for her life as an African. This girl, says Adichie, had a single story of her as an African that left no possibility for a more complex understanding of her background and culture beyond that singular stereotype. She interpreted all Africans through a lens of catastrophe, poverty, and backward civilization. We can all fall prey to the phenomenon of the single story, whether it be ethnicity, nationality, economic status, or religious affiliation. We can flatten everyone from a specific group into one thing, one simple commonality, one story. Adichie wisely points out that it is impossible to properly engage with a people or place without understanding the complexity of stories and experiences of that place or person. The single story robs people of their dignity and makes it difficult to see them as equal, multifaceted humans. The single story, says Adichie, creates stereotypes. And the problem with that is not that stereotypes are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They turn one story into the only story. Do you have any uh, thoughts or reactions to that section, Jason? Yeah, no, I mean, nothing, nothing uh, better than what you said. <laughs> you know, I, 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 you see this playing out publicly minute by minute, you know, right now, this, uh, you know, the, this, the stereotype uh uh, is at work in a in a real powerful way right now. Yeah, in both directions. Uh, yes. Well, and I've I've seen you know even my own biases at times and feeding into a single story, um, and I think it's important to you know speak those and be honest about them um, because we all have them. But for instance, uh, I remember. A couple of years ago, I was at a store and there's a group of uh, Muslim women walking together. And, you know, they had the full, um, had, uh, the word just went out of my mind, hijab. Um, hijab? Yeah. yeah, on, you know, and all of that. And they were walking and laughing and giggling together. And as I walked by, the thought kind of went through my mind, like, should they be doing that? Like, is that in line with you know, being Muslim. And I realized that I'd kind of in my mind created this very flat, like Muslims are serious and, you know, they don't mess around and they don't laugh. (laughs) They don't, you know, and so it was like, I had, I had, and I'm not trying to make fun at all. This is on me, you know, I mean, but it was like, it was shocking to me for a moment. Like I literally thought like, should they be laughing? Is that in line with, the Islamic life or, you know, and I had created a single story in my mind. That's just, um, 
that's just not accurate or complete. Yeah. And I think when yeah. we we can easily do that in the church, whether it be culturally, right. racially, socioeconomically, um, we can uh, create these singular visions of other people and then assume totally. we know where they're coming from. Yep. Yeah, and being stereotyped is a very heavy burden to bear. You know, I, I think it's um, in, in the in the instances where it's happened to me, it's just like it's it's difficult because how do you untell that story for people? And and then you 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 know, being being a Christian, for example, I mean, you're you're there are assumptions made about you know what you think about everything politics you know culture music art and it's a um you can almost overcompensate and it, it puts people who are being stereotyped in a situation where they have to fight so hard to untangle that yeah and it, it, that creates further distortions and frustration so I just feel like this is a big one to yeah put on the table and no, that's a that's an excellent point, and I know one one that jumps to mind that I hear a lot, and I know my wife has wrestled with this. Uh, being a, a Black American is the stereotype of being the angry Black person when you respond yeah. to something, and you know I've spent a All lot right. of yeah right. I, I've spent a lot of time in Africa, particularly Western Africa, and it is very demonstrative uh culture the way you know especially when you're in nigeria and places like that um it's you you speak passionately if you care mm -hmm, about something mm -hmm. and so you come over here and a lot of that culture still exists in the african-american community and then people get labeled as being angry and so this constant like you know hey i want to speak out and i want to be passionate yeah. and the way i normally no speak but now I'm getting labeled as an angry person. And I have yeah. seen people in churches be labeled or, you know, be sort of categorized as well. They're, you know, they're just angry, uh, mm -hmm. angry black woman or whatever. Um, and it's, it's really quite destructive and, and unfair. And um, one, it's a total misreading of the culture. But I, I think another sort of side element to that that comes alongside of it is understanding the difference between archetype and stereotype. Right. Um, you know, yeah, and totally. so and the example I've used with that is you and I are both from Wisconsin. Right. And so mm -hmm. the the story on people from Wisconsin is that we drink what? Yeah. All day. Beer. We're drunk all the time. Right. Yeah, we drink right. beer. Yeah. And we eat, we eat cheese, right? Yeah. Now, those are archetypes, which means an archetype is something that's generally true about a group. There's truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. Wisconsin drinks yeah. more beer yeah. than most people. We eat more cheese than most people. Um, I've had people come over to our house and open up our fridge and be like, you have an entire drawer, like a big drawer in your refrigerator for cheese and i'm like oh, yeah it doesn't I'd be like that's all you have yeah doesn't doesn't everybody <laughs> um yeah. but i don't drink beer i grew up in wisconsin right. my whole right. life i don't drink alcohol i don't like beer um and so uh, you know if if somebody were to stereotype me and say well you're from wisconsin here's a beer no there's that's an archetype it can be helpful mm -hmm. there's a general yeah. truth to that but when you then 
insist that everybody from that group is like that, um, then that becomes a stereotype and it becomes yeah. actually destructive to building a community. Yeah, it, it really, it really is. I mean, this, this is the the power of marginalization at, at work and, you know, in stereotypes. I mean, you think, you think of how this works within, you know, gender stereotyping. It's, it, it, it constrains people uh, to hide themselves, mm -hmm. you know, um, for fear that it'll just corroborate the, the pe what people already think and look down upon. Yeah, and and it's just a uh, it's a toxic thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and that's an area that I recognize I continue to have bias and 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 need to grow a lot in is in the uh, cultural divide between genders and understanding, yeah. um, you know, what uh, women deal with um, in the church and in society and, and understanding that aspect as well. Um, that That's an area that we continue to need to address as well. Sure, so I'm, sure. I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that. Let me read this last section here yeah. on politics. Um, and uh, yeah, let me read this. I almost didn't come today, but I'm glad I did. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that sentence or one like it just after we've completed giving a crossing the line culture, race, and kingdom workshop at a church. In the past two years, my wife and I have given over 50 of these workshops in the United States and beyond, and inevitably I hear a sentiment of that nature. We're now pushing towards giving about 100 workshops, but at the time I wrote that, that was uh, where we were at. What usually comes next is that the person didn't want to come because they didn't want to get beat up over their political views or didn't think the church should engage in politics. They often tattle on others as well, not only informing me that they themselves were not going to attend, but telling me of others who didn't come for those same reasons. Although I've grown accustomed to this response, it's still curious to me that so many would automatically assume that topics of culture, race, and the kingdom of God are going to be political in nature. Now, when they say political, what they usually mean is that they assume that the workshop is going to take a decidedly liberal view of things and bash their conservative values. Let me be clear. I'm not taking political sides or denigrating one political philosophy while exalting another. I reject partisanship at all levels. I think Christians should have an approach to politics that's so novel to the categories that the world offers that it becomes nearly impossible to label us. But the hesitance that many have expressed to me reveals that for many, the topics of diversity and culture and cultural inclusion sound like part of the worldly political agenda, so they resist it at all costs. Most are relieved when they come and hear and discover that this is nothing of the case, but that fear is real and must be addressed. Many people will hear that your church wants to become more culturally competent and inclusive and work on these issues and will automatically assume that the church has jumped the shark and allowed itself to be infiltrated by some of the liberal agenda. And I would add to that, Jason, that now I, I, I would, if I was writing this right now, I would add in, uh, if we want to talk about issues of justice or community mm -hmm. engagement, those are yeah. kind of the hot discussions now. Slavery is an issue that transcends politics, but it has often become political in nature. 
Human trafficking is not a political issue, but it can get mired in political posturing. Inequity or abuse in the criminal justice system is not a political matter, but can easily be co-opted as such. Abortion should not be a political issue, but has often been used as a political tool on both sides. We can make almost any issue partisan by using it as a pawn in our so-called culture wars or partisan divisions. When that happens, as is the case with cultural diversity, we cannot just ignore it. We must make the case that being culturally competent is not a political trend. It is a biblical mandate. We must make a concerted effort to demonstrate to those who view everything as political that, while this may occasionally overlap with programs and agendas that they will see outside of the church, that does not mean that it's worldly. Becoming all things to all people is as biblical as it gets. Several years ago, I was speaking on these topics in my home church, and I wanted to demonstrate a statistic that I had seen published by a U.S. government task force and cited by multiple organizations as being accurate. Without thinking much about it, I found a colorful graph that demonstrated this statistic and used it as a PowerPoint slide. The graph was from what is considered to be a liberal news site, a fact of which I was unaware at that time. Needless to say, say, there were a couple of people for which it did not go unnoticed, and they immediately took offense at it, viewing it as a political statement. I'm glad they pointed that out to me. It was my mistake and one that I learned from. We must stand up for what is right, but also be careful that we do not set up needless obstacles by allowing cultural inclusion to be mistakenly viewed through the political lenses of the world. Any one of these areas can derail us from being culturally competent people or can become a point of division. In a church family, we must go beyond the meatloaf philosophy and be willing to do whatever it takes to continue to work toward unity in the manifold body of Christ. Yeah. Any yeah. closing thoughts here, Jason? Well, I, yeah, I love this last bit here. Um, I think the, um, you know, the all language um, <laughs> regarding almost anything that is important at any level is now so freighted with an with an agenda um and it's created a situation where christians um you know as a part of this culture especially those who are passionate about you know how the church should be engaged which i think is a super important discussion um but we're we're having to police the language and and untangle so much that it's left us with little we can say or do. Mm. Um, and so any stand we take, it's already freighted. And you can't, you can't redefine the terms um, because it already means what it means for people. And so it, the church, you know, and I think this is a, just a product of, of what does Charles Taylor call it? The, um, it's, it's a kind of humanism, you know, it's a secularism, I guess, but it's, yeah. it's we're, 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 we're uh, policing everything that is said. And so you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't use that. And, and not to say that we shouldn't be careful, because like you said, the graph you put up could have easily been justifying something that you don't want any part of, and this, that isn't good. But on the flip side, um, 
how do you stand for justice if you if your hands are tied because everything you say is going to offend somebody and so the church has to be able to have these discussions and i think more than anything exercise a kind of uh love and willingness um yeah to speak without making these judgments um yeah, anyways. Yeah, no, that's this, good. This is good. And uh, Charles Taylor, who you referred to as the author of a huge book called The Secular Age. Um, if Very you, demanding. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening and thinking of reading that, uh, clear clear your schedule. Yeah, uh, change your mind. Yeah. <laughs> not an easy read, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, but an important book, I think, for, for some to be familiar with. You know, I, I, on that topic, Jason, I, I, I think you're spot on. And I, I feel like one of the real issues is that we have uh, we have brought into the church too many allegiances, whether mm-hmm. they be political, ideological, national, Amen. you have yeah. it. Um, and we have not really been challenged with full allegiance to the kingdom the way that it was intended to be to you know in the first century when you declared that jesus is lord you were also implicitly declaring that caesar is not and you were you were denouncing your allegiance to the roman empire and to your nation and to politics and all of those sorts of things and because we have not all laid down those allegiances the church can't be the true prophetic voice in the community that it's supposed great to be point. because yeah, if point. we stand up and speak against one side or the other side, we'll get killed in our own church by people who yeah. have these political yeah. allegiances. Um, totally. Yeah. And, and well, I, go ahead. Yeah, that's good. No, I, I, well, I was just going to say, you know, you, you bring up for, for, for Paul, in, it's, it's a wonderful example because, um, especially the book of Isaiah and, and some of the Psalms, but the, you know, the, the good news or gospel was a, a, a freighted term in Hebrew scripture. And it meant something that it, it was, it was parallel meaning, but it meant something that it didn't mean in the Greco-Roman world. But here's what's interesting. Paul didn't opt for a different word thinking, oh, that's going to cause too much problem. The two right. problems and people won't understand me if I if I use uh, you know the term gospel in the ways that the Greco-Roman world understands it they won't get it but he chose to subvert the language uh, knowing that it would it would alienate mm. many mm. because it took a stance and it was a defining language for the for his churches you know yeah. for the Jewish church as well but. But it, yeah, like whatever it meant in Isaiah, you know, uh, God, God, your God comes to reign. You know, it's it shows up most vividly at the end of the exile in Isaiah 52. But what God's reign and all that that implies, um, it didn't mean Yahweh's reign to the Greco-Romans. It, it meant reign, but a different kind. Um, and so I think we have to be willing to not play by the rules of society to, to such an extent that we mm. can no longer make a claim. Yeah. No, that's We're very timid about doing. Yeah. You know, Black Lives Matter is a perfect example of this. Yeah. 
No, that's that's a really good point. I, I, I have to spend some time thinking about that because I think I have um, often taken the route of let's just avoid that language so as not to be misunderstood. Well, at the same time, recognizing Maybe. and, and well, teaching that Paul uh, uses chooses to use all kinds of Roman words. Repent is right. you know a military totally. word. Kingdom, yeah, right. um, you know, a gospel. Uh, on and on, he takes words from the uh, Roman way of thinking and and reimagines them around Christ and what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's going to cause me to think some. I, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I could say so much more about that topic. Um, maybe I'll write a book on that. Um, on on writing about everything else, you might as well. (laughs) No, actually, as, as you know, um, I have, um, written a book, uh, on politics. It's coming out, uh, July 5th and it's called, uh, escaping the beast politics, allegiance and kingdom. You can get that and any other of the books that we talk about here or that I've written at michaelburnsteachingministry.com. If you have any uh, feedback or questions that you'd like to ask, uh, please write us at the at all things to all people podcast at gmail.com. That's all things to all people podcast at gmail.com with no numbers in there. It's all letters. Uh, Jason yeah, at the be- let me just say yeah please let me just say with your you know I've I've had the the privilege of being able to to scan my eyes on your you know your manuscript for this book and you know for for everyone um, following you here uh, this is a daring and needed move and I'm so grateful that you're you're willing to um, yeah be bold here and and I think. Um, we have to be willing to be uh, unsettled uh, by the by our compliance with the status quo and to rethink and you use the word reimagine. I love that. So I'm I'm hoping everyone uh, is picks up a copy and uh, finds a new way through this stuff because I think it's a lot of help what you've done. Yeah, I, escaping the beast. I really appreciate that. I'm uh, clearly going to have to re-examine my email process because I don't know how I accidentally sent you a copy. Um, that was <laughs> that yeah. was completely unintentional. Um, yeah, well, I should I should have known this was an accident, <laughs> and I was hesitant to send my remarks back to you because I knew you'd just make fun of me. So. Yeah, now people are going to think that I make fun of you, which is not the case. Um, (laughs) Please don't feel sorry for Jason. If anyone (laughs) makes fun of anyone, uh, the river's flowing this direction. No, 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 (laughs) no. I just quick, I did a search on the book you sent and looked for my name and I didn't see it. So I quickly closed it and moved on. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, no citations of me in this nothing, book. Nothing about me. Here, Garbage. So anyways. <laughs> Throw it away. Um, no, I appreciate it, Jason. Thanks for um, joining us at the beginning. I said we were going to try to get to a listener question. We obviously didn't do that today. Um, but I think it's a really important question, uh, so much so that I, I, I want to have a full discussion on it. And so I think we're going to do a special episode 
uh, a bonus episode that uh, we'll have you back on soon and talk about this uh, question from uh, a listener named Jenna Palmer. I think it'll be really. Uh, oh, I know uh, Jenna Palmer. Uh, yeah, well, the, I, I forgot awesome. you knew her, so that'll be yeah, great. So awesome. you can. Um, she's great. Give us inside scoop on on uh, her as well. Um, she's yes. probably mortified right now that we're sitting here <laughs> chatting. <laughs> so what you get. Welcome to the team. Yeah. Well, amen. Uh, you might not be in the book, but you're going to make the podcast. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we'll get to that next time, Jason. Thanks for joining me. This has been uh, episode 17 of the All Things to All People podcast.